pain and suffering and immobility was where David Rosenberry found himself. He was getting a little bit older in life. He played sports as he was a kid. And then he got to a place where he was losing mobility in his shoulder. He couldn't lift his shoulder to dress himself, to put his clothes on. Uh, and he was dependent upon other people to help him live every single day. So he goes to the doctor and he says, I'm experiencing all this pain. The doctor is listening. And uh, the doctor diagnoses him with frozen shoulder. Frozen shoulder. Uh, it's a, I guess it's a real thing. I'm not a doctor, but uh, he says it comes from age from use and the joint just wears out and becomes frozen. Well, what's the, the help for this? How do you fix a frozen shoulder? How do you inject life back into this shoulder? Well, the doctor prescribed David physical therapy. He said, first, you need to start learning how to use this shoulder in different ways and strengthen those muscles and joints and tendons. And secondly, you need to get a cortisone shot right into the joint to bring some life back into this frozen shoulder. Says it's gonna be painful, but uh, we'll have you up and running. Well, David listens. He's like, all right, I can do physical therapy. I'll do the shot. Let's knock this thing out. And as they were sitting there and the nurse was preparing the shot, the doctor looks at him and says, just curious. He was like, what do you do uh, in your life? Uh, what's your vocation? How do you make a living? And the, pa the guy says, well, I'm a pastor and I preach for a living. A little bit of an awkward pause. And I can tell you that when people find out you're a preacher, you kind of get an, an awkward pause. Pastor asked him naturally, he said, well, do you have a church? And the doctor starts kind of chuckling in his face and laughs and he says, oh, I gave up on that years ago. Now just sit back and relax. We'll have this shot. We'll get you loosened up so you can have that finger pointing at people all over again. Now that's, hilarious in one sense, but humor is only funny if it has an element of truth in it, right? There's probably some of us in here who have experienced Christians in the past as very prickly finger pointers. If you surveyed people in your life or on the street, if you went to the town center and just said, how do you experience Christians? You might get some response of, very judgmental finger pointing. It begs the question, how in the world did we get to this place? How is this the experience of the world uh, as they view God and his church? It's not, the church isn't the building, it's us. How did we get to this point where we have been reduced to finger pointers, judgmentalists, prickly, uh, kind of hard to get along with people. If God is one full of grace and love and holiness and mercy and justice, and we live out of that abundance in our lives as a derivative of who God is, why is the world's experience with Christians like that? It makes us ask, if God is full of grace and we live out of that grace, if we're saved by grace, how does grace change us? We should be changed by grace. And this is what this text is all about this morning. How does God's grace change us? We're gonna answer that in two ways. We receive grace and we share grace. We receive grace and we share grace. 
We see how we receive grace in verses one and two. Look with me there. It says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. So God's angry, his anger turned away, we're comforted. And then behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. Now, if we think back to Isaiah 6 a few weeks ago, we saw what happened there. Isaiah encountered God in his holiness Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. He felt the weight of his sin against God's perfect holiness. It rattled him to his core. He was completely undone because of his sin, because he knew that sin in God's presence is destroyed. He, he felt that weight and that fear of God's holiness and his sin, but God's grace cleansed him. He was forgiven and he was sent on mission. Now, if you think about this, you're wondering where did God's anger go? How do we get from God's anger to this song? Because this song, what we have in Isaiah 12 is a song. It's the response to God's anger being turned away. This, this text in Isaiah 12 is a response to uh, that little shoot that God promised that would come up and the knowledge of God would go before the earth. How do we move from God's anger to this point of God's beautiful grace? Well, Isaiah through this text is teaching us that we will all have an individual response to our sin with God the same way he did. If you've received God's grace, you will in your life come to a point where you realize, like Isaiah, that uh, God is angry with you. There is a point where God is angry at your sin. God hates sin. And when you turn to God for mercy and forgiveness, his anger is turned away. But we have to ask, how does God turn away his anger? Does God flippantly look at your sin before you trust him through faith? Does he just flippantly say, I I'm just going to just move away my anger from him? All right, I'm just going to, to move it away. Uh, their sin is so bad against me and so cosmically evil that now that they're trusting me, I'm just going to just throw away that sin like it never happened. We have to ask, how do we get from this place where God's anger is turned away, where he's our comfort and salvation? Where does that anger go? You see, God is holy. And God can't just sweep our sins under the rug. His holiness dictates that he deals with our sin accordingly. But here's what grace means. God provides a solution for our sins. He provides a solution. And this solution is a sacrifice. And we see this all the way through the Old Testament. So if you think back through the Old Testament times, you see these places of animal sacrifices. 
What in the world is happening there? Do they just really enjoy killing animals? No, the whole point was God's people realized who God was, they realized their sin, and this sacrifice was a temporary means for God's anger to be poured out on the sacrifice and not on their heads. So they did this all the time, and they were saved because they trusted in that sacrifice to be a sufficient payment for their sins. But it was temporary, and they did it over and over and over and over and as you start to read the Old Testament, you see that every time they had these sacrifices, they knew it was looking forward to something greater. You read through the Psalms, there's always this anticipation of there's coming a sacrifice and a Messiah who's going to do this and we could end this entire sacrificial system. That's God's grace saving people through a sacrifice. Are y'all tracking with me here? God has been saving sinners through sacrifices from the beginning of time. The people were saved not because of their works. They were saved because they trusted in this sacrifice. Isaiah picks up this theme of this sacrifice. I promise you we're going somewhere with this. Look at Isaiah 53. He's mentioned, he knows a sacrifice is coming. He knows this entire sacrificial system has an end state. Isaiah 53, five through six says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. The Messiah, this final sacrifice, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, we are on this side of the cross, and it's easy for us to look back and be like, yeah, that's Jesus. Like, that's the guy who was beaten, whose stripes have healed us, who was nailed to a cross and suffered and died. But think pre-cross. This was God moving through Isaiah to say there's going to come a sacrifice that's going to save God's people once and for all. It'll be finished and if you can imagine Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished, Jesus is the culmination of this. But this was written 700 years before crucifixion was even created. Man, this was created 700 to 1,000 years before Jesus would even walk the face of the earth. God, through Isaiah in this text, in this song, is saying that God has always had in mind the desire to pay for the sins of his people. God is a God of absolute grace and mercy, and everything he does is the outpouring of his love for his people. This entire Old Testament, the entire text that Isaiah is talking about, he's telling his people that God is going to bear his own wrath on himself. God is going to take the punishment of his people on himself. And if you're thinking about God, well, and you, catechism says, well, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, right? So how does this infinite, eternal spirit bear in his body our sins? We know how he did this because he came to us in the person of work of Jesus. Look at John 1.1. 1, 1. 
John 1.1 tells us about how God came to earth. We're about to celebrate this in Advent. We're kicking the tires on Advent. It's here. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is all about telling the world that Jesus is God on earth to save us. And we have to ask, well, what did Jesus being fully man, fully God do on earth? Look at his work in verses 10 and 13. As we read this, you'll hear uh, rumblings of Isaiah being called to share the grace to his people and they just didn't listen. Listen to how Jesus's ministry went. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Imagine having a child and raising it and the child being like, I've never known you. Man, how painful that would be. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Sounds just like Isaiah. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh of that sacrificial system, nor of the will of man, but of God. What I'm building us to, what the whole Bible is building us to, what Isaiah and Isaiah 12 is building us to is that we are a people who receive undeserved love. We are debtors of grace. God, I almost wanna do a pop quiz. How often have you heard it said that God loves me just as I am? And we would nod our head like, eh, I mean, I, I guess, like, yeah. That's actually false. God doesn't love us as we are. God loves us despite how we are. God knows what he's getting in this interchange with us. Jesus knew what he was getting into when he came to save us. He would be tortured and killed and beaten for our fickle momentary affections. He knew that he would pour himself out and that we would regularly interact with him when we only have time, that we would trust him on our own terms, that we would give him little sections of our life that only God's allowed in. And God would relentlessly pursue us and continue to bring his life and love to us despite our emotions despite the ways in which we think God loves us. His love for us is never changing and it's never fickle. And he knew what he was getting into when he went to the cross. He knew how challenging of a people we would be. He was saving all the people that Isaiah was writing to and pouring his life out to, to say how good God is. D.L. Moody memorably said about God's grace, he said, the law tells me how crooked I am. Grace comes along and straightens me out. It reminds me of metal forging and blacksmiths when they take raw material and stick it into a furnace and they hammer out the imperfections and stick it in water and then put it back in the fire to harden and, and sharpen and it's a painful, and it's a heavy process. And the question before us becomes, do you realize that you were like that raw material, 
that God has to labor over and over and over for, that you are a work in progress, that your sins deserve to be punished, but God in his mercy allowed you to trust in Jesus to be forgiven. Do you realize the crookedness like the raw material in the forge goes in? Do you realize that's us? Once you start to get this, it starts to change the way you view your relationship with yourself and God. This starts to change you. It starts to help you focus on how amazing God's grace is. God did everything in his power to reveal to us his love for us. If you could imagine yourself seeing Jesus in the garden sweating drops of blood, he was doing this for you. If you could imagine Jesus being beaten and captured and mocked, if you could see it, you'd be like, that's enough. Come on, man, I got it. I've got this. I know you love me, Jesus. But he said, it's not enough. If you get the torture he went through to earn our love, that starts to change the way you view God and you view your life and you view the suffering that we experience in this world. Jesus says, what else do you need to see from me to prove that I love you? Because when you go through seasons of suffering, it's not that God's turned his face from me, but he's saying, I've been there. I know what you're going through. The loss, the pain, the brokenness, the sadness, the abandonment, people backstabbing, people lying, things failing you constantly. God, it's not that God's not there. God's right there with you in it. And he's already said, what else do you need to see from me that I know what you're going through? I've conquered it and you're not alone. That's what grace starts to do in your life. It changes the way you view your lot in life. It changes your circumstances. It changes the way that you interact with God. It reminds you that God's grace is absolutely amazing. We have these songs about amazing grace. We talk about God's amazing grace, but let's not do it flippantly anymore. It's only amazing because of how sinful we were and the lengths God went through to make it so amazing. If you're like me, though, God's grace wears off from time to time. The amazingness wears off. What's some diagnostic questions as your pastor that I can bring before you to maybe see if God's amazing grace has wore off in your life? First and foremost, does God's word find itself as one thing amongst many in your to-do list? Or is God's word primary for your morning and evening as you go? As you, in and out of your home, in and out of your work life, is God's word primary? Are you storing God's word in your heart? Another way to see if God's amazing grace has worn off in your life is, what does your repentance look like? 
if you get how beautiful God's grace is, you want to repent. You want to get this off of my shoulders. There might be some of you that are carrying around significant trauma and pain and brokenness and suffering. Some of you maybe even later in life, you're, you're uh, things are coming to mind that you didn't realize happened in your youth and, or your parents may be aging or you may be towards the end of life, whatever the case may be, and you're carrying around burdens that you are not intended to carry on your own. If God's grace is not amazing in your life, you're never gonna let anyone in. You're gonna close yourself off and stay away from people. You're not gonna allow yourself to feel emotion with God. You're never gonna let anybody in to love you. I'm not saying broadcast your brokenness to the world, but one or two people that you know who have big enough shoulders to weep with those who weep. You know those safe people in your life. If God's grace isn't amazing, you won't even lean on those people. If God's grace has worn off in your life, you're going to be critical of yourself. You're gonna beat yourself up. You're not gonna have grace for yourself. And you're going to want to self-medicate through whatever the case may be. It could be vegging out in front of the TV. It could be overeating, whatever. Fill in your vice. If God's grace isn't amazing to you, you are going to crush yourself. And naturally, you'll crush other people. You might ask, well, how in the world does that amazing grace help me with this? If you realize what you've been saved from, if you realize how terrible your lot was in your sin before God and the lengths that God went through to save you and to love you and to care for you, and to be patient and gentle and kind with you, then you'll want to spend that time with the lover of your soul and your life. If somebody was here right now in this world that was loving you that way, you would say, that's my top priority in life is to be with that person and to bring my, my group of people, my little tribe with me to that person. They love me that well. That's how it starts to change you. You have grace with yourself. You have grace with other people. You don't hold yourself or others to a standard that you'll never be able to live up to. Amazing grace reminds yourself that everything you experience in this life passes through the cross to your Savior who's always saying it's finished. It's done. I'm here with you and for you. That's what amazing grace does in our lives. It flips how we view ourselves and others on its head. Pastor John Calvin said this. He said, faith needs the word. Now it needs God through scripture, Jesus. Faith needs the word as much as fruit needs the living root of a tree. You can imagine what fruit off the tree starts to look like it has some life for a time, but it starts to rot and decay, typically from the inside out. If you've ever broken into a rotten fig or bitten into a rotten fig, we had figs growing up, 
It's the most disgusting thing in the world. It's horrible. On the outside, you're like, I'm about to tear this thing up. You get into it, it's disgusting. What does decay look like in the Christian life? It starts slow. It starts real slow. You start to back away from people and things. You start to back away from your time with God. Your relationship, your personal relationship with Jesus starts to deteriorate. You start to become more and more critical of yourself and other people. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all those, they start to, to minimize and decay. And then you turn in and hard and prickly. And you start to find out that life doesn't emanate from you. And you start to try to bring life through all these other means. And all the meanwhile, you've got your Savior who's saying, I'm here for you. I am your source of life. What's the, what's the call to action? What do we do from this? My encouragement is to spend time in the word, learning more and more and more about the one who loved you so much he would die for you. Learn why the resurrection is important inside of your life. Learn how God's grace is sufficient for everything that you do. Spend time with him in the word and prayer. Make your relationship with God the most important relationship in your life. Because as we'll see in this text through our second point, the first half of this is all about experiencing God as an individual. The second half of this text is once you experience this grace, how does that grace go to other people? As Christians, we're called to be poured into, but that's only half of the battle. We are to pour into other people. How can we give people God's grace and mercy, that, that wellspring of life? How can we be that for other people if we are dried and parched and dying and decaying? You find Jesus in his word. You find what his grace means in his word. That's my encouragement for us all. When you spend time in his word, his grace will change you, whether or not you realize it or not, and then you'll start to share it with other people. And that's our second point. We talked about how grace changes us. First, it does it internally, and secondly, we share it with others. Look at verses three through six. In verses three through six, it, the language moves from, uh, like Isaiah, one person experiencing grace. So like Isaiah, he experienced personal grace. And then Isaiah's response was, after God said, who will go out for us? Isaiah said, me, I'll go out. He was sharing it with other people. So this text moves from experiencing grace personally to experiencing it as a church with other people. It leaves us and goes to others around us. Look at the text. It says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The you there is plural. I, we, we need like a, a, a Southern translation of the Bible where it's got a bunch of y'alls in there. With joy, y'all will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. So you're seeing it's, it's affecting other people. 
proclaim his uh, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord for he has done grace gloriously. His anger has been turned away. Let this be made known in all the earth. That's the Isaiah six from this little shoot. The knowledge of the Lord will go amongst all the earth. This is a song from that. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. What's happening in this text is grace is overflowing people. It is running over in the individual person's life and they can't help but share it with others around them. They are singing for joy what the Lord has done. And this is describing the infectious nature of grace. Grace is infectious. The imagery that Isaiah is using is this well of salvation. And this is a theme that runs all throughout the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, this well of salvation. Isaiah's initial hearers would have thought back to their time in the wilderness wanderings in the desert. They thought they were dying of thirst. Everyone was complaining and griping. And then God brought water from the rock to feed millions and millions of people and their livestock. It was overflowing. Everybody was able to drink from this. Now, this side of the cross, we think of Jesus And we think of Jesus's interaction with the Samaritan woman in John chapter four. As we look back, we see that Jesus was the fulfillment of Genesis one, the spirit hovering over the face of the waters, all this imagery of the water feeding people, this well of salvation in Isaiah 12, all of this is moving to Jesus And we see this in John chapter four. He met the Samaritan woman. So this is a woman who was outside of the Jewish uh, way of living, worldview. She was off limits. She was by herself. She was working. And Jesus came straight to her and met her with grace. This entire scene in John chapter four that we're about to dive into is bracketed with grace on grace on grace. Look at it. In verse 13, As they're sitting together, um, he's sharing with her life and love. He's sharing with her eternal life. And he tells her, he says, everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. So the Samaritan woman was there to draw water. She was there doing work. And Jesus uses this illustration with her. And he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You can feel this text and this song from Isaiah coming to life in Jesus. And what was her response? This woman was, by Jewish standards, she was living a very licentious lifestyle. She was, uh, she didn't have many rules with her body and how she was engaging with other people. Right, She was so off limits that she wouldn't even, no one would be in proximity with her. But Jesus comes to her full of grace and meets her where she's at. Her response to Jesus's words was, give me that water. I want that water, Jesus. And guess what? He doesn't say, well, ah, let's not even talk about your lifestyle. That's kind of awkward. We'll, we'll kick that down the road for a little bit. No, she wants the water. And he's like, well, let's talk about how you've been living. 
And he's not finger pointing and wagging at her. It's all through this realm and lens of grace. And he offers her forgiveness. He offers her relationship. He offers her himself. And what was her response? Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. She just stopped working for the day. She clocked out. And what did she do? She had an individual response. She saw grace. She saw her sin. And her response was what? She went away into town and said to the people, it overflowed her, come and, come and see the man who told me all that I ever did. Everything that she had ever done was laid out right in front of her. And it was infectious for her. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. This is a whole secondary sermon. I'm not going into it, but let me just leave you with this. The broken, the burdened sinners, the crooked, y'all have a place and a home with Jesus. Jesus is our home. He is full of room for people who are broken and needy. Jesus said he didn't come to save the self-righteous, but he came to save the sick and needy because in his, in his self is where you find righteousness. You can't be self-righteous and have Jesus's righteousness accredited to you. Sinners have a home with Jesus. This woman experienced grace in the middle of her sin. Jesus never once in this text said it wasn't offensive, that it wasn't wrong. He didn't give her a free pass, but he offered her life because he was the source of her life. She received it. She went to tell others. And then what happened in this village? Look at verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans, so off limits people, from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He, her testimony was this, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his what? His word. Our faith needs this word, church. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Church, God is the giver of second chances and third and fourth and fifth and millionth chances. God is a God of grace because of the person and work of Jesus. And this changes everything for us, even from a very microscopic level to a very grand level. Let's talk microscopic for a minute. When's the last time you looked at somebody you cared about in your life and you just asked them, how are you experiencing me? What an exfoliating, soul-bearing question that is. When's the last time you asked your kids that, your coworkers, 
your spouse. When I do pre-marriage counseling, I always tell them, write this down, ask each other, how are you experiencing me? You're asking for your sins to be laid out before you. But what God's infectious grace does is it allows you to hear the truth of how people experience you and you find your identity is in Christ and not in your sin. If Jesus is your identity, you can hear the ways in which you're hurting, harming, you're distant from other people, you're relationally closed off. You can hear these things as painful as they are and you can hand them to the Savior and say, I'm not even arguing back here. God, change me. That's what drinking from the well of salvation continually looks like. It changes the way that you even buy groceries. Two different ways. I was a uh, bag boy for years, but it changes the way you do groceries. When you go and you pull something off of the shelves, do you know how long bag boys and stockers have to front shelves all the time and block inventory? Whenever you pull something off the shelf, just Grace just says, I'm gonna move the next one up so I can save he or she a little bit of time. Not only the way that you front shelves for people, but you're like, I'm gonna buy extra groceries this week because I know my neighbor just had a baby or somebody's going through a divorce, somebody's dealing with a funeral, somebody's dealing with life. I'm just gonna make extra dinner and invite somebody in my world to dinner with me. And if nobody shows up, then I'm just gonna go to the neighbor's door and say, hey, uh, we made extra blank food. And if y'all have never had Alan Marsh's food, go get friends with Alan Marsh because he makes the best food. I always hope Alan has extras for me, right? Grace changes the way we view our lives. It, it removes the ability for us to just live in maintenance mode. Grace makes us get outside of ourselves because Jesus left eternity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, came to our war-torn world, took on flesh like us, got outside of himself to save us and show us mercy and grace. And as people who are debtors of grace, it should build in us that same response to other people. It doesn't mean adding a new program into your life. It's just, I'm going to think deliberately about where God has me so that I can love other people well because I want people to experience the same grace that I've had. You can't give what you don't have. So who's pouring into you, church? Who in your life do you trust who's been there and done that? Who in your life is bringing with you during whatever season you're in and pointing you to Jesus? And secondly, who are you doing that with on the other end? Our lives are meant to be this rhythm of being poured into and then pouring out to other people. So how does your life look like right now? Are you so busy and so stressed and so maxed out? Is there no margin in your life that you're putting off things to think about in the prime of your life? Because I've sat alongside deathbeds with many people. Nobody at that moment is like, man, I wish I would have bought this and this. I'm glad I had that. They say, I wish I would have done more with my life. 
What margin are you creating for ultimate things in your life? You need this well of salvation being poured into you 100%, but you also need to be pouring into other people. No matter where you are in your relationship with Jesus, you are always the bigger brother and bigger sister to somebody. And somebody's always gonna be your bigger brother or big sister. And we need to be poured into to pour into others. Do we get that? If you're like me, you're like, I don't do this well. I fail at this. I'm maxed out. I am not creating this margin. I've never even thought about living like that in my life. Welcome to the club. This This doesn't let us off the hook for being debtors to grace, but all it does is it forces us back to the fountain of grace that says, Jesus, I'm failing to live like this. Forgive me, equip me, and send me on mission. Mission doesn't mean going to another part of the world, but it means everybody in my sphere of life, what's something, Jesus, I can do today to show them grace? What's something that I can do with myself and show myself grace? Because when you receive second chances, you're more prone to give them to other people. And I'll close with this story. Uh, Sarah Lindegarden was uh, a wife and a mother She had four children. Uh, The youngest was 17, and the oldest, I don't remember her age, was a little bit older. The two oldest daughters both had husbands and children. The daughters lost their husband. She lost her husband. None of them had enough life insurance to care for each other, so they all came together, lived in one location, and Sarah was pretty much by herself feeding and caring for all these children and grandchildren that were living with her. She had the same grocery uh, list every week, do the same meals that she was doing to make her money go as far as it could. Well, the economy, as you all may have experienced, things have gotten more expensive. And last year, she was at the self-checkout line at Walmart and she was checking out her groceries and she sees, I've got more groceries left. I know how much cash I have and I'm already at budget. I've got to feed these people. There's no, there's no me putting these groceries back. So what does she do? She fake scans them, puts them in the bag, puts it in her cart, All the meantime, the Walmart employees are watching her do this. The cameras are watching her not scan these grocery items and she's turned to just full theft, right? They pull her aside and they're like, ma'am, I need you to come with us. She has a, a a granddaughter with her who has exceptionalities and this child is scared. She's crying, what's happening? Are we in trouble? She gets in the room, the police meet her there, everything's falling apart. And Officer Wagner talks to her, what's going on? She's like, well, I was putting these groceries in my cart and I knew I couldn't pay for them. So he runs a background check on her, comes back, Sarah has no criminal record. She doesn't even have a speeding ticket. What in the world has caused her to get to this place? Officer Wagner asks her, like, Tell me what's happening here. And she says, well, I've got all these children. I'm a widow. My two oldest daughters are widows. 
The money is running out. We can't afford groceries the way that we used to, and I've got mouths to feed. I made a mistake. As he was writing the ticket and hearing this, he has one or two decisions here. Does she get law? Does she get grace? Being a Christian himself, experiencing God's second chances, Officer Wagner balls up the ticket, throws it away, and out of his own pocket, pays for her groceries. Helps him load him up in the car and sends her home. She's floored. She can't believe it. About two hours goes by. She, she's had this wonderful experience of grace. And sure enough, guess who comes knocking on the door? Officer Wagner. And if you've been let off the hook before, there's this air of like, is this too good to be true? Like somebody's even come back and get me for this one. She sees Officer Wagner decked out in all of his gear. There's a crime scene van in the driveway that he's driving and she is absolutely panicking at this point. She's like, get the groceries, bring everything out. Everybody's scared. It's like, how can I help you? Am I here to go to jail? He says, no, actually what happened is that I went back to the station and I contacted my church and we went to the food pantry. They loaded up the CSI van with fruits and vegetables and meat and showed up to the house to feed all of these people. And they were happy to give her this gift. Look what her response was. Bring it back. I don't deserve it. I committed a crime. All she could focus on was how much of a failure she had been in this moment. And, and this officer is lavishing grace on her. I've forgiven you. And not only am I forgiven you, I'm going to make your lot in life even better than what you could have possibly imagined. And her response was, I'm a criminal. I don't deserve it. Well, she's right. She doesn't deserve it. But grace is undeserved love and favor. And Officer Wagner said this to her. He said, God is a giver of second chances. And when God gives you second chances, you need to take advantage of them. Have you received a second chance from God? Have you realized God's amazing grace in your life? If the answer is yes, praise God, but then who do you need to give a second chance to? Oftentimes we refuse to forgive people who've hurt us. And I'm not saying jump back into bad relationships, but create healthy boundaries. But if you're withholding forgiveness from other people, it's like drinking poison, expecting someone else to die. Who do you need to let off the hook? so to speak. Who do you need to forgive? Forgiveness is costly. Who do you need to love? Maybe it's not even a forgiveness issue. Who do you need to love with a second chance? Maybe your marriage has gone stale. Maybe your relationship with your coworkers has fallen flat. Maybe people in your family you've grown distant from, maybe old friends. Whatever the circumstances are, what second chances do you need to offer in your relationships? For some of you, second chances look like, I've sinned against you in this way, forgive me. You told me how you experienced me, forgive me. 
Repentance not only is turning back to God, but it's praying for new obedience. So when you receive second chances from God, are you taking advantage of them? Are you availing yourself to God's mercy and grace? Are you quick to confess your sins to God, to other people, and are you quick to forgive others? Remember, God's grace is an endless fountain that you can come and drink from day in and day out, and he's always got more than you'll ever need. Take advantage of it. Watch yourself change. Watch the people around you change. Let's pray. Father, you are a giver of second chances, third chances, million chances. I have failed you, Father, in so many ways. And yet when I turn to you, you're always gentle. You're always kind. You're always warm. You're always welcoming. You remind me, Father, what it took for me to be forgiven and Lord, you always gently bring me back to you. Father, would that overflow us and into other people? Would it affect the way that we do little things? Would it affect the way we do big things? Would it affect the way that we spend our time, the way we spend our money? Would it affect the way that we love people around us? We don't do it for our glory, Father, but for yours, because all those are opportunities for us to tell other people how great you are. Holy Spirit, magnify your greatness and your love of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in our lives. Magnify that now, Jesus. We pray in your name, amen.